0: If you would open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, we are continuing our sermon series uh, this fall semester going through uh, the book of Matthew and highlighting uh, several different uh, sections in this wonderful book. We're looking at the question, who is Jesus and uh, Matthew chapter 10, we're going to be actually doing this entire chapter. And uh, I love this one quote from Winston Churchill. He says this, words are more than just words. They are real. They are action. They create something and do something. Well, how much more so God's word? God's word is what created all things. God's word is his action. The preaching of God's word is. Is not just information dump. It is God doing something. And so we listen with the anticipation that God is at work because his word is living and active. So with that in mind, let's read Matthew chapter 10. We're going to read the whole chapter and, uh, and then we will dive into it. And he called to him his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. To cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew's brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve, Jesus sent out, instructing them, saying this... Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or, or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. And where, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake To bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father, his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that it will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him. Who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do you not think I have come to bring peace on earth? I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is my disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're asking in this time that we would hear you speak to us for this is your word, not our own. We are asking that we would see, as it were, your action through the proclaiming of the word. And so give us eyes to see it. Give us ears to hear it. Give us hearts to feel it. Give us hands to respond to it. Father, help us to see your son. Help us see him in all of his glory. And as we see him, that we too might be glorified after his image. We ask all this. In his name, amen. A healthy church is like the moon. The moon reflects the light of the sun rather than shining its own light. Were the moon to try and shine its own light, then people would perish. Because it does not have the ability to provide what the people need. So the church cannot seek its own glory. But the glory of God and the church must reflect that glory throughout the world. That is a healthy church. What we're looking at this morning is what true gospel ministry is. This is what Jesus is talking about here as he's getting ready to send his 12 apostles throughout the surrounding region. He's showing them what true ministry is like And what Jesus has been doing up to this point, he's been spreading, building the kingdom of heaven. And now he is equipping his people to broaden the kingdom. He's sending them in his name and by his authority. But what we can learn from here is not just for them originally. It's also for us today. For Jesus's truths are timeless truths. Jesus's truths can be applied in any era amongst any people, no matter what's going on, because he is the God of all truth. So when we want to see what a healthy church is, what a healthy gospel ministry is, Matthew 10 is where we would go. The main point for today, we would say is this, is that when we are the moon and when we reflect the sun, then people will live. So brothers and sisters, be the moon. Gospel ministry, what does it do? It establishes a greater kingdom. Look at verses 1 through 15. Gospel ministry establishes a greater kingdom. Jesus has called his 12 disciples to him and he's given them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. But we do need to ask the question, what do we mean by gospel? Let's not just say the word and then just assume what everyone means. What do we mean by the gospel? Here's what we mean by the gospel. The gospel is good news, not good advice. It is the good news that the son of God took on flesh to become God and man, even though we didn't want him. And he lived a perfectly righteous life without any sin, even though we didn't. And he went to the cross to take the wrath of God in our place even though we did not deserve it. And he did that so that he could save us by his grace rather than by our works even though we try to save ourselves. The gospel is bad news in the sense that it tells us we're bad. I'm sorry. Uh, that's not the happy, cheery message we like to hear today. But that is the news. But the good news is that Jesus is merciful and gracious that he comes to bad people. He has come to save us. And because of this gospel message, this is what we tell people. This is what we proclaim. Because gospel ministry is ministry that ministers the gospel. Gospel ministry is ministry that ministers the gospel. That's what we mean. But you do have to ask the question here. And looking at verse 1. Why did Jesus have 12 disciples? Is that random? Is this just weird? Why did he have 12 disciples? You see, we actually know why Jesus is having 12 disciples because he's not doing something random, but you have to remember that the people of Israel, how many tribes did they have? Twelve. You see, Jesus has come to establish what the people of Israel could not establish on their own. In Genesis 28. God had created man in his image and it says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. What a mission, right? Go, come on now. We're going to be, we're going to be listening this morning. What a mission. But did they do that? No. No. Maybe even within 24 hours, they fell. Sin came into the world. But nevertheless, we see in Genesis 9-1 after the flood, God tells Noah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Here's what we see. Just because we failed does not mean God is giving up. Amen? Genesis 15, we see God blessing Abraham. And he's blessing Abraham, even though Abraham does not deserve it. And he says, you are going to have an innumerable amount of offspring. See, even when we were sinful, God is determined to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, even through sinners. Genesis 32, we see that Jacob is wrestling with the angel of the Lord. And in that very process, he is renamed from Jacob to Israel. That's where we get the people of Israel. Here's why I'm saying all this. Because in 2 Samuel 7, with David, God made a covenant. He said this, I will one day provide a king, and he will never leave the throne of Israel. Now, did it go perfectly according to plan, at least to our expectations of that? No. Because in Ezekiel 10, we see that God actually left the temple due to Israel's covenant faithlessness. So you've got to ask the question here. It's this. Is God giving up on Israel? Is God giving up on his promises? Is God taking back what he said? No. He's just going to do it in a way we did not expect. You see, where Israel had failed, Jesus comes as the new and better Israel, and he succeeds. Why does Jesus have 12 disciples? Because he is bringing what God has always promised. He's going to fulfill God's promise of going throughout the whole world being fruitful and multiplying. You see, what is gospel ministry? Gospel ministry is God continuing to bring people to true Israel, to the greater kingdom. That's what you and I are a part of if you're in Christ. You are part of the true Israel. And the true Israel has their true God. Amen? I love what one commentator says, uh, Craig Keener, he says, most Jewish people expected God to restore the twelve tribes of Israel at the time of the end. But that's exactly what happened. Because Jesus is the one who who begins, who starts the end times. We are seeing the restoration of true Israel. One day it will be perfectly visible. But not quite yet. We see remnants of it. We see glimpses of it. But one day it will be Totally fulfilled where we will see, as it were, the 144,000, the symbolic number of who the true people of Israel are. So what does Jesus provide for gospel ministry? That's why he has 12 disciples. But what does he provide? Well, he provides people. Don't miss that. Jesus is not primarily uh, providing programs or strategies. He's providing people. Jesus is providing Sinners. Isn't that amazing? Did you notice actually uh, who's in this list? Um, Peter, he was a really good guy, wasn't he? Yeah, he never messed up, right? Peter denied Jesus three times. Matthew was a tax collector. I mean, you even see that in God's strange providence, you'd see that he used Judas Iscariot. Jesus is not sitting back saying, I'm going to wait and see when you guys clean yourselves up and then I'm going to use you. He uses sinners to minister to sinners. But it is at the same time a warning. Because if he can use Judas Iscariot, it means this, just because we are used by God does not mean we are saved by God. Embrace Jesus Christ because that's what Judas Iscariot did not do. You see, God loves to use sinners. You see, being a part of gospel ministry is a privilege. It's not a a right. You see, it's very ironic and actually very unbiblical for people to demand leadership. To make power grabs on leadership and demand it as if it's theirs. Because the Bible says that's totally different. Leaders are people who serve. You see, it's a privilege to be a part of this. Jesus is the one who chose them. You see, what this means when Jesus sends out his people, here's what it means. Because he's going to send them out in his name, it means that when the people succeed, God succeeds. Isn't that awesome? When the people succeed, God succeeds. But you got to ask the question, look at verse 5 and 6. Jesus He sends out the twelve and he instructs them. He says, go nowhere among the Gentiles or enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. See, that's kind of weird. Why why would Jesus say that? Why only go to the people of Israel and not to the Gentiles and Samaritans? He's not saying that they will never eventually go there. We obviously know that as you continue to read Scripture. uh, That he absolutely, the gospel includes going to the Gentiles and going to the Samaritans. But not quite yet. Here's what one of my professors, Ben Glad, says. The point here is not that the Gentiles or Samaritans are excluded from the kingdom, but rather that ethnic Israel, ethnic Jews, re, uh, receive priority. That's what Paul means when he says that he's not ashamed of the gospel when he says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You see, it's a good note for us to remember that... If there are ever any claims of Christianity being uh, anti-Semitic, that's not understanding Scripture. God does have a plan for ethnic Israel. You see, but we also see this. Notice that when Jesus sends them out, that they're sending, uh, he's sending them out to be actually his representatives. Look at verse 14, if, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. You see, what a sin it is to reject gospel ministers who are faithful to God's word. I, I try to tell students, I do this a lot. What's one of the best ways you know that God loves you? Merely the fact that someone would stand up and preach God's word to you and not give you their own message. God loves you that much that he would bring you in because he wants to speak to you. You see, Jesus is saying that when we reject God's messengers, we are rejecting him. But what does Jesus send them to do? He sends them out to essentially do his ministry. You notice that in verse 7. Look at it. It says, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, who proclaimed that message first? Jesus did. Isn't that awesome? Jesus is not telling you this. Hey, go create your own thing. Figure out what's most relevant where you go. and And just learn that and do that. No, no, no. Just do what I do. Jesus... Tells his people, look, don't try to reinvent the wheel. Just take it and go. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is telling us if we want to know what true ministry is, we must first look to him and always look to him. He says that they are to proclaim at the beginning of verse 7. Meaning that it's almost as if they're, they're continuing even though it's different in redemptive history. But there's, there's similarities to the office of a prophet. A prophet is who would speak God's word on God's behalf. And as they would go and proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they're not proclaiming their own message, but God's message. You see, one of the things we need to notice here is this. What is true gospel ministry? Notice here the priority of the ministry of the word. There's many things that happen in gospel ministry, but nothing surpasses the ministry of the word. You see, one thing we have to remember is this. There is no gospel without words. The gospel is precisely words. It is an announcement of what God has done to save sinners. So if there's going to be true gospel ministry, there must be gospel words. If there is no gospel words, then any ministry that we do essentially turns into works righteousness love what john calvin says he says if the foundation of the church is the teaching of the prophets and the apostles which bids believers to entrust their salvation to christ alone then if you take away that teaching how in the world will the building continue to stand if you take away god's word from the church if you water it down if you make that a minor thing and something else the major thing the church will not be built Where is God's church dwindling in today's world? Where is, as it were, where is Ichabod being written over the church? It is over churches that are no longer preaching the word as the word. And we see that happening. They might mention it. They might quote it. They might explain some of it, but they don't emphasize the word. They don't dive into the word. They don't defend against false teachings that contradict the word. It's the word. Because it's God's ministry primarily, not ours. I love what one person has said, that Christians can no more live without preaching than a human can live without food. Is that the way we view the Christian life? That preaching of God's word, is that necessary for us to live? Jesus telling them to go and proclaim, to proclaim his word, word because as the proclamation of his word as it goes forth the kingdom is established it's always by his word see one of the things we need to be reminded of today is this how do we know where god is yes in a very real sense he is omnipresent he is everywhere but like the temple we know that there are places where god as it were if this makes sense he shows up more where do we see that See, lots of times we can be fooled today by whatever gets us in the feels. Now, religious affections are good and necessary. You don't want to come in here and just be boring and sit. And you're very scared to raise your hand when you sing a good song. Brothers and sisters, you need to sing, right? You need to feel the truth because you don't feel the truth, something's wrong. But we also need to make sure, on the other hand, that we're not fooled by just the lights and the show and the glamour. How do we know where God really is? Again, Calvin says this. The distinguishing marks of the church are the preaching of the word and the observance of the sacraments. These can never exist without bringing forth fruit and prospering by God's blessing. The preaching of the word and the sacraments. Brothers and sisters. God is graciously here amongst us. Amen. We don't need to get distracted. Don't lose focus. Stay focused on what we're trying to do. Proclaim God's message. Don't water it down. Don't take away the focus. Proclaim the gospel. That's what Jesus is telling them to do. That's what he's telling us to do. We're to proclaim it in the way that Jesus proclaims it, not in the way we think we should proclaim it. No other message rivals the gospel. No other message can be brought up that contradicts the, the gospel. The gospel does not need help. It does not need a crutch. We just proclaim it. I love what Spurgeon said one time. You know, so I think someone was asking him a question about defending the gospel. And he said, brothers and sisters, it's like a lion. Just let it out and roar. It doesn't need anything to be added to it. In every culture, in every age, no matter the issues, it is always the same message. And it is meant for that culture and for those people. That's amazing. That's how you know it's true. Jesus is telling them, go and proclaim. He's telling them to see that there's similarities with the office of a prophet. But there's also similarities with the office of a priest. You see there that he's telling them, look at verse 8. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You see, what is a, the office of a priest? It is the intermediary. It's an intercessor. It's the stand between. A priest was who would communicate the holiness of God to God's people and would inspire and persuade God's people to live in holiness towards him. The priest would deal with sacrifices and cleansing. You see that clean and unclean language here. But what does that mean for today? Obviously, we have no more physical, tangible sacrifices of like goats and bulls because the tangible sacrifice is Christ himself. That's actually when we partake in the sacraments, when we said that the bread is the body of Christ and the wine is the blood of Christ. What we are doing is remembering the sacrifice. Administering the sacraments is part of the similarities between gospel ministry and the priestly office. As gospel ministry is supposed to have similarities to the priestly office, it means like the priest, we must be a praying people. One of the best things we can do is that when we see people in need, that we pray for them right then and there. Lift their, Do you realize how incredible of a privilege this is? to have someone who would bring you by name before the throne of God. That is a privilege. What a ministry we can have amongst each other to simply pray for each other by name, either in private or when it calls for it in public, where we can say, Lord, help us. You see, that's why Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. I love when there are some people who... They wanted to visit uh, Charles Spurgeon's church in London in the 19th century. And uh, they had come to the church a little bit early. And these visitors stumbled across a man and they said, hey, you know, we've come to meet you know Spurgeon and hear him preach this morning. This guy says, hey, great. But before we go into the sanctuary, let me show you what really runs the church. People had heard Charles Spurgeon was this very powerful preacher, and something that was just very it seemed like God was really uh, attaching himself to. In extreme ways to Spurgeon's preaching. And so these guys were intrigued. They they want to know what his power was. So he takes them downstairs. And apparently they go into a room where there's several hundred people there. And what are they doing? They're praying. And this man says, this is the boiler room. It's what heats up the church. Do you want to know who that man was who showed him that room? Charles Spurgeon. Brothers and sisters, one of the best things we can do is pray. We do not say this, well, now all we can do is pray. Brothers and sisters, what we do all the time is pray. We also have the ministry of king. You notice that there, it's very evident, verse 7, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, there are the similarities here that as the kingdom goes forth, there's similarities between the office of a king and, you see, we go in the authority of Christ, not our own authority. We go not lording over, but like Christ, we are servant-minded. We seek to have people conform to God's ways and God's ethics rather than our own. We seek to protect people against enemies and false teaching. We seek to provide for people who are in need. We seek to establish a community that embraces His kingdom in His way. That's what Jesus is calling them and us to do. Don't make this mistake that only if you have a platform, we love love that word, only if you have a platform, that's true ministry. Where do we see God really ministering His people? Things as simple as this, parenting. We see it in people praying and people organizing the church, catechizing people, studying a biblical worldview, protecting the weak, exposing false teaching, babysitting children. So maybe a couple who hasn't gone out on a date in a while. This is not, this is not, this is not talking about me. I realized. I was like, I was like wait a second. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. We have students who are very gracious to us. Uh-huh. But I'm telling you. I'm, t- I'm, I'm telling you, there, there, there are people, uh, and we saw this in our last church, who they hadn't, they hadn't been able to go on a date in a long time because of life so busy. And simply babysitting their children can minister to them. Befriending the friendless, restoring the backsliders, forgiving sins, counseling others. How about even this? Just passing out bulletins and welcoming people. Jesus loves the small things. And he loves to use people... To minister the way he ministers. That's what gospel ministry does. So, brothers and sisters, don't be the sun, be the moon, and reflect the glory of the sun, and people will live. Look at verses 16 to 25. Jesus says, You maybe see that footnote in your Bible there, persecution will come, and that's exactly what gospel ministry endures. It endures a greater persecution. It doesn't just bring in a greater kingdom, but it endures a greater persecution. Jesus has some very good news for us. Look at verse 16. I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now that sounds like something you want to sign up for, right? Now, let us remember this, though. Don't reverse this. We are not to be wolves among sheep. We are to be sheep amongst wolves. It's not that we waver from standing up for the truth, but that when we stand up for the truth, we minister in gentleness and compassion and patience. Jesus says here that they'll face numerous different ways of persecution. We even see this just legally. Look at verse 17. Beware men who will deliver you over to courts. We see this actually even today with a really solid church with a really solid biblical counseling ministry in uh, in Indiana. And they're being persecuted legally because... Uh, they're calling people by the gospel of grace. It's not conversion therapy, but by the gospel of grace, passionately, you know, patiently people who are struggling with same sex attraction, they're, they're helping them repent. People are up in arms about this and they're trying to persecute them legally. We also see verse 17. This it says they will flog you in their synagogues. Sometimes persecution comes physically. You have to to really think about this. Wherever the gospel has gone in any region of the world, it has always been persecuted physically at some point in time. Gospel ministry will also be persecuted religiously. You see that in verse 17 because it says they will flog them in where? Their synagogues. Christianity, true gospel ministry will have persecution even from, we see this in, in Europe right now from Islam. We will see it even just across the world, just from people who, quote unquote, are Christian. We see it even at times from the uh, from people who are in the reformed faith from uh, Catholicism. We've seen that throughout church history. We've also seen it when the church persecutes the church. Because when the gospel is proclaimed, people do not like it. We see also social persecution that happens at times. Look at verse 18 and 21. Jesus says they're going to be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Again, verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and put them to death. No doubt we see this today that where the gospel ministry goes, there's, there's going to be some form of social persecution. And we see that happening on social media and in cancel culture and in the way entertainment presents Christianity or even simple things like this, just slander around town. We also see, no doubt here, uh, even emotional persecution, as it were. You see Jesus telling them, do not be anxious, presuming that in those states you're going to be anxious. We also see familial, family persecution. You see that in verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death. I remember I had a friend in college who was uh, from a country in Africa, and he uh, she knew what it meant to embrace Christianity. Because she grew up in a family that believed in Islam. And she knew that were she to embrace Christ, that her family would not just say, we don't agree with you. They would treat her as if she's dead. That was a, a wake-up call to me when I first saw that. But ultimately this, where does all persecution come from or what is in all persecution? It's this. It is spiritually. It is spiritually. You know who lies behind all of it. The evil one. You see that in verse one, actually. Jesus is going to send them out to have authority over the unclean spirits. You better believe they're going to fight back. You better believe Satan does not sit back and relax when he's being attacked, as if when he's punched in the face, he says, Oh, darn. You know, no, he's vicious. So Paul spends a huge section in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6, talking about putting on the armor of God. He talks about that a lot in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 12. Peter will also talk about this, how Satan prowls around like a roaring lion in 1 Peter 5. He is out to get gospel ministry. If he cannot tempt you to sin, he will tempt you to despair. One of the ways in which we know we're doing true gospel ministry is when we're attacked more. Now that does not mean this, brothers and sisters, that let's just needlessly go out and offend people. Do not do that because that's not gospel ministry. But when the gospel is proclaimed, strongholds are being torn down. Satan is being relinquished of his power. Sin is losing its grip. People are being raised to life. Ethics are being changed. You better believe he's going to strike back. And often, as Luther says, you know that God is really getting ready to use you whenever you know you're being attacked a lot. What do we do in these situations? In a very real way, this is a lot easier said than done, but simply this. Stay calm and trust Jesus. Um, Don't put that on a coffee mug. That's cheesy. (laughs) But that's essentially what Jesus is saying in a very, I guess, you know, simplified way. Stay calm and trust him. How do you do that? You look to him more than you look to yourself. If you look to yourself, you're going to freak out. Because you're not strong enough. You're not wise enough. You're not sharp enough. You don't have enough plans. But he does. And you look to him, my friends, because he is your God. He is your king. He is the prophet. He is the priest. Amen? Amen. God loves to use weak people because he's strong. God loves to use people who fumble over their words and can't always have these elaborate conversations with people who are so much smarter than them. But he uses people in simple ways to have an incredible ministry. I think I've used this illustration for y'all probably five times, for RUF probably five times, but here we go again. There's a great theologian of the 20th century who apparently was asked one time, what's the greatest theological thought you've ever had? And without skipping a beat, this man who's written 10 volumes of a systematic theology that's over a million words. I don't even know how I could do that. He said, without skipping a beat, Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so. Brothers and sisters, you have the word of God go forth in his strength. Jesus sends them as sheep amongst wolves but he tells them do not fear you see gospel ministry doesn't just establish a greater kingdom it doesn't just endure a greater persecution it endorses a greater fear look at verses 26 to 42 jesus says so have no fear of them if he's saying have no fear of them who are they to fear more they're to fear him in other words the question we need to ask ourselves is this Whose opinion matters to us most? Who are we deeply afraid of letting down? See, a community who is, that is known by fearing man more than fearing God, you'll see it evident in some of these ways. You'll begin to replace the good news with good advice. You'll begin to replace knowing God with primarily knowing self. You'll begin to replace speaking the truth in love with just harsh judgmentalism. You'll begin to replace rich application of scripture with thinking that the Bible needs help. You'll begin to replace being still and knowing that God is God. And you'll replace that with frantic thoughts whenever anything happens in the world. But what is godly fear? Godly fear is like what happened at a wedding this past weekend in Jackson, Mississippi. When the door's open in the back, the groom's standing right in front of me. And when the door's open, he sees his spouse, or literally a minute soon to be spouse. And it's as if it were, it's, it's a holy moment. And he sees her. He sees her in that beautiful white dress. Nothing else matters. People might be turning around trying to look at him. What's his reaction? He does not care. His eyes are glued on her. He can't wait for her to come to him, but it's almost as if it's trembling knees and he doesn't want to just rush to her and mess up a very reverent moment, as it were. Fearing God is seeing someone of such beauty and holiness and power and sovereignty and mercy that you want desperately his relationship, but you also know that he is holy and he will not dwell in the presence of sin. You see, the fear of God is actually promoted when we know his love and his grace. Because when we see him as he is, we will see that no one's opinion matters more than his. Godly fear cares more about being faithful to him than flattering the world. Godly fear concerns itself more with his approval than the world's approval godly fear contemplates more of his glory than our glory jesus is saying do not fear man fear him and when you fear him you will see it's worth it see he gives them reasons why to fear him look at verses 26 to 28 he says fear god because of judgment coming he says don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell Jesus is telling us that when we remember that judgment is coming, it should have a sober fear within us. Verses 29 to 31, we see that we can fear God because of his providence. You see that in Jesus' reasoning here. He says, look, are you not worth more than just, you know, know, penny-valued sparrows? God cares for them. Brothers and sisters, he will provide for you. He will. Look less to yourself and more to him. He also says that we grow in fear by his love, knowing his love. You see that verse 32 to 33. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. I love what John says in 1 John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. How do you grow in godly fear? You know how much he loves you. And then the love of other people is put in its proper position. You see, we need the fear of God. Jesus is telling them they need the fear of God more than the fear of man because the gospel will offend people. As mentioned earlier, it does tell us bad news. But we don't stay in the bad news. We go to the good news. But nevertheless, people do not like it. They don't like being told that they have sin or that they need a savior. The gospel also, we see in verses 37 to 39, it calls for sacrifice. Jesus says, whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. He tells them that you need to take up your cross and follow me. The gospel does call for sacrifice, and that is difficult. But the gospel ultimately is all about Jesus. As John the Baptist said in John 3.30, he must increase, we must decrease. You see... What we need to be more than ever in today's world is we need to be the moon that reflects the sun, not the sun that just tries to be everything to everyone. There's a story of Mozart's father. You don't remember Mozart's father, do you? You remember Mozart. Some of you musicians will say, I remember Mozart's father. And you probably do because he was an amazing musician. But we all remember Mozart. But what was interesting about Mozart's father is that even though he was a renowned musician during his day, when his son was coming up, I guess, through the ranks, as it were, he started to get more and more content with being Mozart's father. That's not easy. Matter of fact, he really struggled with that. But what the gospel ministry calls us to do is not to try to be God. That's what Satan tempted them with in the very beginning. But it's calling us to shine forth God's glory. It is about him, brothers and sisters. And that's good for us. Let's pray. Father, we're asking that as we hear the word, that we would know what true gospel ministry is. That we would see that you are at work even here in Stillwater. But yet, even as you are at work, we know we will be opposed. But help us to keep looking to him. Help us to keep focusing on him. And we ask that you would shape us to make us more like the moon than the sun, reflecting the glory of God to the earth so that people might live. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.